I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 87th Texas Legislature. This week, King of the Road. If there's anyone in Texas who ought to be happy, on paper at least, about the long-awaited arrival of Infrastructure Week, it's State Senator Robert Nichols, Republican of Jacksonville. The veteran chairman of the Upper Chambers Transportation Committee has been deep in a discussion about roads, bridges, ports, and the like ever since he was appointed one of five Texas transportation commissioners by then-Governor George W. Bush nearly a quarter century ago. Actually, longer than that. As mayor of his East Texas hometown in the late 80s, he had a local official's informed view of the challenges not just his community, but the state faces in getting people and goods from point to point. Texas is fast growing. Just in the time since Nichols, who is 78, first entered politics, our population has nearly doubled from 16.5 million in 1985 to just over 29.5 million today. And it's fixing to nearly double again in the next 30 years. We're also rapidly urbanizing. We have five of the 13 largest cities by population in America, more than any other state. Although that doesn't mean we can ignore rural transportation issues any more than we can ignore rural education or rural health care. And yet, the rollout of President Biden's $2 trillion plan to invest in infrastructure, with that word infrastructure defined about as broadly as possible, only partly sits well with Nichols, who sees politics in every pothole filled and abutment reinforced. The value to Texas of much of the spend, he says, is questionable, since so many of the initiatives seem tailor-made for states in other parts of the country. Of course, even he acknowledges we could use the money, any money, the feds want to send our way. For years, transportation in Texas has been underfunded by billions. Even with two constitutional amendments in the last decade providing dedicated sources of revenue to the state highway and mobility funds, Nichols not surprisingly had his fingerprints on each, we're barely keeping up. And that's in the best of times. The last year, as Nichols and the rest of us know, presented unique economic and budgetary challenges and a list of suddenly more urgent agenda items, from public health to the electric grid, that make it harder for transportation advocates to successfully press their case. None of this phases the chairman, who was a mix of optimistic and realistic about the literal road ahead when we sat down to talk on the afternoon of Friday, April 9th, day 88 of the 140. Point of Order is supported by Texas Tech University, home to infrastructure research, from crisis aversion management to studying the preservation of existing roadways. And by Toyota, a company with deep roots in the Lone Star State, whose mission is to build a future where everyone has the freedom to move. And Lithified Technologies, with its innovative construction solution producing roads that are more durable, long-lasting, lower cost, and environmentally friendly, Lithified Technologies is the future of roads. LithifiedTechUS.com. And the Keep Texas Trucking Coalition, urging Texas lawmakers to support HB 19 to protect Texas jobs and small businesses from abusive lawsuits against commercial vehicles. Learn more at KeepTexasTrucking.com. And Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, proud to support this conversation 
because public dialogue and civic engagement are important and play a role in improving the health of Texans. Let me be the first to wish you a happy infrastructure week. <laughs> okay, thanks. Seems like it's been infrastructure week for the last four years, only now it's finally actually infrastructure week. We're actually talking about it, not just promising it, right? Uh, we've been, I've been talking about infrastructure for a lot longer than those years you just mentioned. Well, I mean, I'm talking about it. national level. I mean, statewide, oh. every week is infrastructure week for you, right? Yeah, there's just a tiny bit of infrastructure in that bill. I wish they quit calling it an infrastructure bill because it's not really. Well, let's talk about that. I appreciate you going there because that's exactly where I want to go first. As you know, this is the moment when the president is rolling out his long promised bill to invest in roads and bridges and ports and other unsexy essentials, part of a $2 trillion proposal combining spending and tax credits that administration officials say, at least, would return government investment in those areas as a share of the economy to the highest levels in more than 60 years. The chairman of the Senate Transportation Committee has to love that, right? Uh, if it were full of infrastructure, yes, I would love it. It's not, though. So you don't even like the parts that are full of infrastructure? I mean, let's just let's stipulate that part of it is infrastructure kind of down the center stripe in the road. You can't think of it as anything other than that. There may be some other stuff in it, which we'll also talk about, but the infrastructure part you don't like. The infrastructure part I do like. It's just a small part of the bill. Right. Well, let's talk about that. So I said two trillion is the proposal. The infrastructure part, I believe, is six hundred and twenty one billion. And I thought we would go, let's go through, if you don't mind, piece okay, by piece. Okay, break, break down the numbers. So break, break down the 621. Well, here's how I got to 621. You do, be, you do better math than me. Uh, so uh, we'll you'll, see. You'll, uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. So the first piece is $115 billion to revamp highways and roads, including 10 major and 10,000 smaller bridges in need of reconstruction. And that also includes $20 billion to improve road safety, including for cyclists and pedestrians. How do you feel about that? Um, on the $150 billion for the revamping. 115, 115, yeah. Okay, $115 billion yeah. Yeah. for re revamping. That's good. Uh, uh, that's always good. The one thing that nobody um, usually asks for is to have their roads maintained. Yeah. And all my years, I've very rarely had anybody ask that. They're always thinking in terms of new projects. So, uh, yeah, revamping highways and overhauling them. You're uh, good, whatever you're you good with call that. It. Yeah, that's, that's always good. very good. Okay. The so 10,000, the, the money for the 10,000 bridges disproportionately probably will not go to Texas. Right. And Texas get their share because Texas has taken care of the bridges, unlike some of the other uh, states that have let them get dangerously uh, weak. Uh, we've got a very robust bridge program uh, to the extent that TxDOT even inspects every two years, right. every county bridge and every city bridge. I don't know that many states do that. But well, if you want to pick on other states, this is almost like the pick on other states podcast every week. So that's fine. If you want to call people out <laughs> no, I'm not going to pick on another state. The bridge money is good. Maybe won't come to us that much. Yeah, I'm not so sure on the cyclist part uh, what I don't know what they're talking about doing there. So okay. that's not going to help the norm, normal everyday traveler. All right. So here's another 85 billion to modernize existing transit systems 
and to help those uh, systems meet rider demand. That would actually double the federal investment in public transit. We don't have a ton of public transit in Texas, right? We have some. We have some. Yeah. The great bulk of the mass transit money goes to the East Coast. Okay, so that's uh, not going to help that, Texas. That won't really help no, Texas that much. Okay. No, we would get just a tiny fraction of that. Here's another $80 billion to fix Amtrak. Uh, to repair Amtrak. Now, you know, the president loves Amtrak. So you've got to be for this if you want the president to like you, right? Amtrak program uh, has been subsidized by billions of dollars every year. Yeah. So they're taking our tax money from all over the nation and they put it in that program yeah. and hardly anybody rides on it. Uh, I rode I, on it one time myself and I chose not to ride on it again. Yeah, the, the, the one experience doing it was not enough to make you have a second experience. <laughs> Correct. Right. Okay. So that's not going to really not, help. Not that's gonna not going to help Texas. Okay. Here's 174 billion in grant and incentive programs for state and local governments and the private sector to build a national network of 500,000 electric vehicle chargers by 2030. Now I can't see you when we're talking, but I'm imagining you're rolling your eyes in a big East Texas way. Is that right? Um, the reality of that electric vehicles are coming. Uh, is here. Uh, the technology is now there. It's acceptable. Yeah. It's no longer something that people experiment with. Or you know, it's kind of cute. It's real. We see uh, electric vehicles growing very steadily. Right. Uh, I think we're increasing in Texas. You know, like thirty percent a year. So I maybe you actually last... maybe you want electric vehicle chargers then, right? Maybe that's a good thing. Well, electric vehicle chargers are, I think, going to be a good thing, uh, but. You know, it's kind of a disproportionate amount of money for the amount. So if you're spending one one five billion to refurbish the highways, but you're going to spend fifty uh, percent more or sixty percent more just for plugs for electric vehicles, uh, private enterprise systems are already doing that. Yeah, well, that tells you, you know. about the priorities of the bill, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Here's another uh, part of it: twenty-five billion for airports, including programs to renovate terminals and expand car-free access to air travel. We have great airports in Texas, big ones. A lot of people fly in and out of them. You and I both do. I would so, think Texas would benefit from that program because uh, we've got robust airports. Our state's so large, we depend on it. We right. have airports in almost every county in the state of Texas. Okay. And then seventeen billion for inland waterways, coastal ports, land ports of entry, ferries. Look, the fact is not every state has ports. We have ports, right? And our ports are hugely important from an economic standpoint. So They're extremely important. We were talking about ports at lunch today. And, right. uh, and before lunch, I was we were talking about ports and the importance. Most people in the state don't realize how, really, how much of our economy depends on efficient use of those ports. So not only uh, the inland waterways, uh, so that the bigger ships can use them. But getting those waterways inside of our ports uh, up today, we do not have a single port in Texas that could take the new big ships yeah. that the Panama Canal was widened for. Uh, the well, new big locks from Panama allow these ships that are called, it's called Asia bound. Yeah. Uh, are, will not, can now come through the Panama Canal and be delivered on the uh, Gulf or Eastern seaboard. And we do not have, a single port that can take one. And so we've got four ports that are trying to get uh, uh, the waterways dredged. And so this, right money, this money will help. So right? this, would, this would be good. That is true infrastructure. 
Yeah. Well, so what I count is basically a third of the 621. It sounds to me like you like okay. A third. Okay. All right. Um, now, of course, in the rest of the bill, the scope of the rest of the bill is pretty broad. Like you and I may think of infrastructure as the stuff we just talked about, but like, you know, there's money in there to help Texas weatherize the grid in a way that wouldn't stick consumers with the bill. That's a very of the moment concept, right? I mean, you all are talking about that in the legislature. There's money to guard the Gulf Coast against hurricanes and address racial disparities that have made black and Latino communities vulnerable to natural disasters. Is that stuff acceptable to you, generally speaking? Uh, I would say uh, when you get into weatherizing the grid, most of these are private companies. Yeah. And uh, it gets kind of tricky when you're doing grants for private companies. Uh, mm -hmm. Weatherizing is very important, as we discovered during this last big freeze. Right. So it's important. Um, the hurricane protections, uh, matter of fact, one of the meetings I was in this morning is about trying to build better barriers and levees yeah. uh, along our coast to protect our communities from uh, natural disasters coming from hurricanes. And so that's that's pretty important stuff too. So so the hurricane protection is the levee systems and stuff. That is what I would I would refer to that as infrastructure. Yeah, it would. So, Very so, important. Yeah, Ch Chairman. You know there are a lot of objections that we've heard from conservatives and from people in the state of Texas who maybe don't like this bill so much. The two that stand out to me are one, a push for clean energy that is viewed as an attack on big oil. And then the second thing is the method of paying for this bill, which includes corporate tax increases. How do you feel about those two things? The emphasis on clean energy? Well, what we've discovered taxes. at the federal level is they don't really worry about paying for things. They just print money and they literally print money. I mean, we owe what, almost 30 trillion now. And so they're throwing trillions of dollars around uh, like I've never seen before. Yeah. And uh, it, it cannot be sustainable. Uh, it just is not sustainable. And so if they're going to try to go back and recover half of Trump's uh, tax cut, that won't even begin to pay for all this stuff. Right. But do you have a, a fundamental problem with that? Do you worry about. Um, I fundamentally have a big problem with that because what know, they're going to do yeah. is the idea was let's get people working. And so when he lowered, when the, when the administration, or the whole Congress lowered, uh, the corporate tax, we saw a tremendous bump uh, in economy and yep. unemployment rates on, on minority groups in particular that were the lowest level in recorded history. Good grief, that ought to give you a strong message on what that is. And so the Democrats always talk about putting people back to work and they're going to go just opposite. So put the taxes back. Uh, is not going to create jobs. It does just the opposite. We so there's, know that. There's, there's not a legitimate conversation to be had by this administration or anybody else about corporations that may not be paying a sufficient amount of money in taxes. No. Uh, we had some of the highest corporate tax rates uh, of anybody on the planet. And we're making our companies not competitive with other right. countries when we're, yeah. our we're in a global economy. So this, this bill, I think even the people who support this bill understand that it's unlikely to pass in its current form. What is the most important thing in this bill for Texas if other things go away that you would save? The one, one five for re, uh, helping rebuild highway systems. The bridge yeah. program is good. Uh, I would say um, the airports are good. Yeah. The inland yeah, yeah. ports is very good. Right. And hurricane protection. That's so where I would. This is all stuff that everybody can agree on, right? 
I would think so. Yeah. So you've been chairman of transportation for a few sessions now. So you've had to pay attention to what's happening at the federal level. Let me ask you about your read on Pete Buttigieg, who's only in office for a couple months as secretary of transportation and his predecessor, Elaine Chow. My colleague, our urban affairs reporter at the Tribune, Juan Pablo Garnum, noted to me this morning, I think correctly, that Pete Buttigieg has a more progressive view of mobility. He talks about bikes. He talks about public transit. This is very different from the approach that Elaine Chow took. For a long time, Chairman, you know, infrastructure was something that everybody agreed on, back to this idea of everybody agreeing on stuff. Now it seems like that's not the case. It's become political, as everything else has become political. Is, does the fact that we have a different approach here, a maybe more progressive approach to my colleague's point, present a problem for Texas? Well, uh, if they're going to divide this stuff, the funds up based on those programs, uh, Texas will come out way short uh, yeah. as, as what happens on so much of this stuff. Uh, the, we send our federal tax, like the gas tax, up yeah. to Washington they scoop off about 25%. We get maybe 75 cents on the dollar back. So there's a 25% administration. So Texas is a donor state. Yeah. And But states that have a lot of mass transit, like Massachusetts, uh, those, those states, I call them the New England states, uh, they, they, Massachusetts not, is not a donor state. For every dollar they put in, they get two and a half dollars back. Right. And why, why would they vote otherwise? You sound like one of those Democrats in the Senate asking for Medicaid expansion, right? They say, well, we're a donor <laughs> state. Give us our tax dollars back. Maybe you can have your transportation dollars back if Nathan Johnson can have his Medicaid dollars back. Is that a good deal? Well, the you know, you always have to read the what are the strings attached to these programs? And if you break his pre, not not his presentation, he's done a very good job of uh, presenting his case. But when you really get down into the devils is in the details, really? Yeah. Uh, uh, then if you accept this money for that, well, then you have to do uh, this other thing over here. And if you take this money for that, well, then you've got to do something different over here. If yeah. they don't just give it to you. And right. that's what everybody thinks. They say, well, oh, you sign up and you get all these billions of dollars. Well, not really. You have to create whole new programs that you might not want. And have, not you, have you ever, have you ever seen a dollar that the federal government has allocated, or for that matter, the state, that doesn't have some string attached? There's strings mm. on everything, right? Not really. Uh, there's strings on some things, but uh, your highway program in Texas yeah. are roads for everybody. Yeah. There's no strings attached. If you want to ride on them and right. you're you know, buying gasoline, well, then you pay gasoline tax. And you have a vehicle registration fee you know, to help cover the cost of, uh, you know, being on the road. So there's very little string attached there. Uh, um, Chairman, let me ask you, do you dispute that we have work to be done? I mean, let me back up totally far back from this whole conversation of the specifics. Do you dispute that we have work to be done on, on infrastructure investment? As I understand it, yes. right now there are currently $24 billion worth of highway bridge and infrastructure construction projects underway in Texas, which I think is the most at, at any one time ever, right? That's probably close. I'm not going to question yeah. you on your numbers. But, but, but the uh, point I'm, is, it, that would suggest to me we have a lot of work to do, right? We do have a lot of work to do, and it's not enough, uh, frankly. Yeah. The, uh, uh, if you want to have any chance of uh, reducing congestion in the urban areas, at the same time that you maintain a statewide system at a certain level, uh, 
well, there's not enough money to do it's that. Really, it's really expensive. Can, can we afford to do everything we need to do without those federal dollars that are being dangled in front of us? Uh, I've learned a long time ago to, uh, if you're going to wait on the federal government to solve your problem, you're going to be waiting a long time. Right. And that Texas needs to solve its problems on its own. Right. Uh, but we will can always continue to guide, since we're sending money up to the feds, uh, guide and uh, encourage and lobby or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. To try to make sure that we get our share of our money right. uh, and that it goes to the right programs. So and I'm telling you, that does have strengths to it. I'm tempted to ask you if we could afford not to take federal money if it's available, but I think you've told me the answer, which is not all federal money is money we can afford to take. Correct. If it makes us do things that ultimately are problematic as we define them. Correct. Right. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. There, the, the federal money has a lot more strings. Yeah. Uh, than our state money used in our state programs. And the state money are strings that we control, yeah. not somebody way up, you know, up in D.C. So uh, yeah. uh, am I hopeful we get additional money for infrastructure? Yes, I am. Yeah. But more than a shot in the arm, uh, this it is not productive at all for the federal government to come out with a lump sum, here's some money for a project. What most politicians forget, especially the ones in D.C., is that you have to have a program that's leveled out over a period of time because you've got to figure out which project you want to build first, which one makes the most sense. Then you've got to figure out where you're going to put it. And then you've got to go and do your environmental, which uh, we're getting better at. And shortening the time, but it's still several yeah, years. It, take, it takes a lot of time. I mean, the yeah. idea that the idea that you would do any work on transportation in, then a short, got, in, a, yeah. in a short time frame. I mean, this stuff takes a long. Uh, no, right? uh, I remember when uh, President Obama had his. I think it was Tiger program or something, and they wanted to get all this money out there real quick, and it was real infrastructure. So they asked the states. In other words, we had a certain allocation, but we had to come up with shovel-ready projects almost immediately in a very short period of time. Well, we had them. We had project after project to rebuild bridges and to rebuild roads that were ready. And they said, no, we don't want to do that kind of a project. So we're not going to prove those. Yeah, we know it's important and you're going to have to do it, but we don't want to do those kind. We only want to do the, the, the new stuff. <laughs> well, the new stuff has got to go through an environmental process you right. got to get the right away. Anyway, it's years into planning. Yeah. Malia and, Obama and, may be president by the time that happens, right? I mean, come on. Well, I, you know, you said that. Uh, well, you, you and I have it, to vote for Look, you and I are going to both be gone before that happens. So, but uh, <laughs> anyway, um, hey, I want to ask you, Ch Chairman, give me your state of transportation spiel. Somebody runs into you in the Capitol and they say in a short elevator ride, how are we doing? What are our biggest challenges right now well, in 2021? What well, would you say? Thanks for asking. Uh, uh, first of all, I'd say we're doing well. We're doing much better than we used to do. Yeah. Uh, uh, I've been working on this for, gosh, two and a half decades. And uh, uh, some of these things are slow coming around. But uh, overall, we're doing a whole lot better than we were. We actually reached a point in 2003, literally in 2003, if you took every bit of our revenue stream just to maintain and preserve the system, and we still could not do that. That's yeah. how short we were. And there was no money left to build any new project. We were there in 2003. And the legislature, I wasn't in the legislature then, I was at TxDOT. 
And, uh, but I was over here every day during session and I was over here telling the members that, and they understood it. They just didn't know how to get us revenue. No new taxes, no new fees, all that, all those kind of things. Uh, and so they were asking different ways to leverage, but what they did do is they began borrowing. They did a $6 billion uh, bond, which the public voted for. They did a $5 billion bond two or three years later, four years later. And that's $11 billion. They came up with a couple of programs so we could borrow another $7 billion. And within a 10-year period, eight or nine or 10 years, we had created about $24 billion, $21 billion in debt. And now it's time to pay the pipe. But that's how projects were built during yeah. that decade, from 2000 to 2010. And it wasn't until 2014, thereabouts, that we actually got some new, new revenue streams. Um, and, uh, and, but they did give us the opportunity to leverage money, building tow roads and things like that, which the department did and the communities did. And we built a lot of them. And, uh, to the point that it was a little bit of burnout by some people. And so we're not building as many now, but we are maintaining and moving a lot of traffic on those tow roads. Yeah. Right. And, and you think the economics of this actually have settled down a bit. I want to, I mean, I want to come to the two propositions that passed, in, in a moment, but, uh, you know, which obviously has made a big difference, or I want to ask you, the, did it make as big a difference as we assume it did? But the With economic, the economic have, piece of this has stabilized a bit. Yes. Uh, we now have multiple different kinds of revenue streams. Right. And so yeah. when you put them all together, normally it kind of helps level it out. Yeah. And we have uh, uh, the Texas Mobility Fund, whereas yeah. the state has the Rainy Day Fund. Mobility has the Texas Mobility Fund. This may sound kind of strange. But it has revenue streams and it can borrow money unless we shut, I call it shut the door, put the lid on it, which we did about four or five, six years ago. And we've been paying the debt off. We've gotten up to seven billion. And we're going to be asking the legislature to open up the door, let us borrow back up to about seven, which would bring us about three billion dollars in. Because we did get a hiccup in our revenue streams when the oil and gas market crashed. Uh, about a year ago, right? So and, uh, Chairman, and I the COVID hit. Yeah. Well, the last year has been anything but predictable, right? And any any assumptions you had going into last year have kind yes. of gone away. So let, let so, me. I want to ask you about that. So that's something okay. you're doing right now. You're you are this moment in this legislature requesting yes. the opportunity to go a few billion dollars additionally into debt to make well, up for what you just lost in the last year. Basically, yes, uh, but uh, it, it's not a new type of debt that there's a bond. This this mechanism is already approved by the voters. Uh, right, right, but but it allows you to do it. You prefer not to do it, but you think you're in a moment where you need to go I, another $3 billion into debt. I know that we need to do that, Yeah, uh, and so that's what I will be asking the other members to do. Uh, my counterpart, uh, uh, Chairman Canales on the outside, he and I have discussed this several times, Right, and uh, he's working the bill across. He, he's, so he's, he's working on it right now. Right. So, so uh, this has been a weird session. I mean, let's say that with COVID and the, the limited bandwidth that people expected to have heading into the beginning of the year, this was not a session to do a lot of ambitious new stuff. The fact that the budget was not as bad as the comptroller and the rest of us thought, notwithstanding, we were going to see kind of a quieter moment. And I thought about transportation, particularly, you know, public ed had its day last session. Higher ed thought it would have its day this session. Of course, healthcare did because of COVID. Then the storm hit. And so everyone's focus is where it is. Um, I want to kind of get a sense from you about what you have planned 
Are there big likely are there big likely changes to policy and law? Uh, and you mentioned the debt thing that you're talking about, but is there anything else going on, or is this going to be more of a sleepy transportation session as these things go? Well, we never have a sleepy transportation session. Oh, um, that depends on <laughs> who you're asking. Yeah, the, the, I would say transportation-wise, that's probably one of the most important things that's going to happen. And he's explaining it to House members. The ones that have been here uh, for a number of years, I think, are familiar with it. Yep. And it won't take them long to get up to speed. But because we did lose so much uh, local fuel tax, yeah, uh, state fuel tax, because people quit driving and the companies quit driving trucks and that's diesel. Right. At the same time, uh, there was an international incident that basically cratered uh, the f- oil. The oil went down to $26 a barrel. Right. And, and, and so that hurts the economy, which hurts, you know, the fuel tax and things like that. But also one of the funding programs, Proposition 1, that uses oil and gas severance taxes. So if they pump less and, so the volume was down and the price was down. Yeah. So, so, so let's go. Let's go, let, yeah, let's go right to that. So, so we're six and a half years out from the passage of Prop One. That was a constitutional amendment that diverts half of the general revenue derived from oil and gas taxes from the rainy day fund to the highway, state highway fund. We're five and a half years out from the passage of Prop Seven. So one of these was 2014. One of these was 2015. Yes. Um, Prop Seven was a constitutional amendment that allocates sales tax funds from the purchase and rental of vehicles to state transportation projects. Both were plus, in response, right? P- plus, p- go plus ahead. two and a half billion of general revenue per year. Right. Plus, uh, bo- both were in response. Both of these amendments were in response to an underfunding of transportation problem that everybody acknowledged we had. I think the estimate was about five billion a year was that we were trying to to solve. Yes, for. that was correct. And at the time that Prop 7 passed, I mean, you were involved with authoring both of these, right? I mean, you had yes. your hands on all this stuff. Yes. At the time that Prop 7 passed, you called it the largest single increase in transportation funding in Texas history. So it was a very big swing at the ball, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So again, let's do the math on this. So two and a half and billion- It was, it was yes. heavily supported in, in a bipartisan manner. Well, and when the voters looked at it in November of those two years, I mean, it passed overwhelmingly, right? So everybody wanted to do it. It was almost, it, I wouldn't say overwhelmingly. I would say it's way past that. It blew off charts almost. It was like 84.5%. Yeah, you, you, probably, was only, you, you probably don't yeah. get 84.5% in Jacksonville at, at the ballot, right? I mean, well, maybe. actually, I get 87 in my home oh. county. Who's, but, who's, ca- uh, who's counting, right? Exactly. I'm counting. Yeah. Uh, I always count. Uh, yeah. But, no, it, it was kind of unusual. I mean, the people really wanted it. Everybody supports transportation. It's hard yeah. to find somebody that doesn't. And I saw, I was worried about Prop 6, the one preceding it, because as you're going down the ballot, if you see something you really don't like, you put a big no on it, then uh, you're in a bad mood. And the assumption is you, you then you're probably going to do a bunch of more no's. So if a, a really bad one on number six would have hurt us. But it was a constitutional uh, protection of your hunting and fishing rights. Right. I mean, who's going to vote against that? Well, yeah. transportation got a higher percentage than that did. That, well, that's amazing. It, it's, it's amazing. I mean, again, because people don't go into it thinking it's so exciting to vote for transportation stuff on the ballot. But anyway, but anyway there they, it is. They always vote for it. Can we do, can we do the math, please? So it's $2.5 billion from the state sales tax revenue plus a billion, uh, 1.5 billion from taxes paid when people buy or rent motor vehicles. Is that right? I mean, and then another well, billion from it, Prop well, 1. How, how much money from these two things in total annually? Uh, here's the way this works. It's two and a half bill, uh, 
if we use an annual two and a half billion a year plus 35 percent of the vehicle sales tax and rental and that kind of stuff after it passes a certain number. Right. But what does it ultimately amount to? I mean, as, as, as you've, as, again, the, the, the question, I, question I really want to ask is how has it worked out? Has it worked out the way you expected it? It's worked you out expect, very well. You were expecting an amount. Yeah, we were expecting the question is, it has to start that out at five. We were expecting it to be $5 billion in the buying them every buying them and then increase from, from that as yeah. uh, the sales tax on automobiles and rentals increased. But, and, but has, the, has the amount of money actually turned out to be the amount you projected is what I'm saying. Yes, it's a little bit short on the sales tax right. uh, because, you know, we had COVID and a few other things happened to hit. But we're getting there. So I'm very optimistic about it. Right. You know, you know that at the time, back, just back to this question of, of, of what you didn't anticipate in the last year, you know, at the time, there was a lot of talk about the wisdom of relying on sales of cars to fund transportation when, among other things, consumer habits are changing, right? And there was a similar concern about relying on oil and gas taxes, given the volatility of the energy industry. And you just referred to what happened to oil prices in the last yes, year. Yes, but I and, can and also, and, also, and also the growing popularity of plug-in vehicles. I mean, there's a lot of things here about the world we live in today that sort of cut against the assumptions on this. No, I, I would kind of argue the other side of that one. Okay, I would say on, on the vehicle sales tax, it doesn't care if it's electric, Hydrogen, <laughs> or, yeah, right. or gasoline or diesel. It's how yeah, much but you if you're, but if you're relying on gas taxes as part of this, well, you prop, have prop seven vehicles. You know that's but not prop right. seven doesn't rely on on gas sales. Right. It it, it relies on general revenues and right. people. Where there's assumption people will keep buying automobiles. Right. Uh, 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 you know, and so your autonomous cars that may just pick you up and deliver you where you want. I would say now that would be a major disruptor. Uh, but right. not the fact that one's electric, one's natural gas and that kind of stuff. Uh, prop, so that was the more stable of the two propositions. The prop one was the one that was probably more up and down. And so, you know, people would say, well, that's not very dependable. And I'm going, well, uh, there's a lot of money there. We've got an awful lot of oil in Texas. Well, that's true. And, and yes, it goes up. And it goes down. We go through boom bus, boom bus cycles, and ever since Texas has struggled, we've been going through that. And I, 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 I compared it to the the teeth of on a saw. It's up and down, up and down, up and down. But it's always in an upward trend. The up and downs on a upper a higher growing trend. Right. And so I remember back in I think it was the eighties when the first big bust hit, and we went all the way down from I don't know, ten or $12 a barrel, $20 a barrel, down to $6 or $7 a barrel or something yep. like that. And here, the latest one, we went from $100 a barrel down to $26 a barrel. Now we're at 60 But good grief, look how much higher 60 is than $10. Well, well, well listen, <laughs> Chairman, I remember on my birthday last year, April 20th, I woke up and there was the price of oil at negative $35. And I thought, I'm not in the energy industry, but I don't understand how that works. I mean, that's, how does that even work? Um, and to think that here we are almost a year later and we're at 60 bucks or thereabouts, that does show you how, how we're, as you say, sometimes back on the, on the upswing. Now, there was another argument against this whole plan that you uh, uh, put into place with one and seven. And that was that you were tying the hands of future 
legislatures. You know that at, at a time when lawmakers you have, have to over less than 20 percent of the budget. Has that played out OK? Have you felt it's handsome? played out? It played out very well. And, yeah. and what I tried to rationalize with the members for a revenue to, to have a robust transportation system, you have to have a long term planning uh, revenue stream that's dependable. And when I mean dependable, I mean that you can count on being there. I need to know within a reasonable budget factor how much money we're going to have 10 years from now for that year so we can start planning those projects today. Because that's, is, the, because that's the problem, right? Because, because you, the problem. You, you, your projects are so far out. Right. Yeah, and if yeah, it's right. not constitutionally dedicated, it's not dependable. Because you get into a bad year, and it's kind of like, well, let's pull a little bit away. Let's pull a little bit away. And that began actually happening to the tech dot in 1987. Uh, they had a short, uh, they were short on the budget, several million dollars. So they went over there and scooped money out of the highway department. And some people can argue, well, there are a few dollars over there that are not constitutionally dedicated, but there's not that much. But also they went in and said, well, the Constitution says state highway fund and enforcement. So they started funding DPS. DPS. I remember that. Well, look, so this is basically a way to prevent monkey business from happening. Yes. And, and those, so they had dollars the point, that were dedicated for roads to go to roads. Right. And the legislature had gotten the point even as late as, well, let's say six, eight, uh, whatever we did this first prop one. Uh we were still taking about a billion dollar a year out of the highway fund and spending it on non-highway stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the legislature said, uh, I think it was 2015, right around there. Not only are we going to pass these new propositions, we're going to quit robbing the highway fund. Right, Some, right. They call it diversion. So they ended diversions and, and, and there's not been an attempt to go back. And, and in that respect, it, it, it's worked out. So we've talked about the past. Now, let me let me turn our eyes to the future. I spent some time this week, Chairman, talking with Lloyd Potter, the state demographer. Obviously, the size and distribution of our population affects the work of every committee and every chairman. There's literally no area of policy unaffected by projections of the kind that he produces. Two of the many things he said to me stuck with me that I want to ask you about. The first, it relates to the growth of the population. We've been adding just over 1,000 people per day to the state's population, not 1,000 people moving here. It's about half births over deaths and half migration. There are more than 4.2 million more Texans today than there were in 2010. One, and that's the most additions to a population over the last 10 years of any state. One scenario, it's a muted scenario, relatively speaking, puts us at about 35 million in 2030 and 47 million in 2050, although there's a more aggressive scenario that says it could be closer to 37 million in 2030 and 54 million in 2050. We got to get all those people from place to place. How do we do it with our existing infrastructure and our existing menu of transportation options? This seems like a problem for you and for the issue that you care about. I, I love to work on those kind of issues. I'm, I'm an engineer and engineers get into engineering because we like to solve problems. Right. It's, more, it's easier to solve a problem like this, at least figure out the path to go along, it's harder to get the legislature to go with you. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's, right. it's not, just having a plan doesn't get you there. You have to have a plan you can sell and they will buy. Um, and there's, there's a lot of smart people down here that, uh, that want to help solve those problems. So you think they're, always, they're in a buying mood. They get it. They get that the growth of the population presents challenges that are going to result in you sure. having to spend money. 
I, I talk about it all the time. What is even more complicated is somewhere between 90 and 95 percent are going to the urban areas. Right. That's 20 percent of the space. Yeah, I, I want to come to that in a second because I think urbanization <laughs> is a problem. But 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 I guess generally speaking, look, let, let me say it this way. I was mentioning the existing menu of transportation options. This is the part of every conversation we've ever had, you and I, going back to the first time we met. This is the part of every conversation we've ever had where I ask you about high speed rail. Right. Which has new momentum or at least theoretically has new momentum back back to Secretary Buttigieg, who has talked repeatedly about high-speed rail in Texas in his public appearances. I don't know why he has a thing for high-speed rail here. He was on a Wall Street Journal podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he said unprompted, think about what it would mean in Texas to have excellent high-speed rail. Where is your head on that from the standpoint of the other menu of options that exist? It's a matter of how much you want to spend to build it. Well, of and course. I, of I course. that somebody course. could build it if they've got enough money. The problem then is how do you maintain and operate it, and 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 uh, and, and break even, yeah, or maybe yeah, yeah. even make money and create sub accounts for future maintenance and stuff like that. Right. It will not pay for itself. We you're are not, nowhere you're not close. opposed to adding it as a menu of transportation options, but you still have concerns about the economics of it. I would start off with the economics, and then if you can ever get past that, you. I don't think anybody can show me a single high-speed rail on this planet that is not yeah. subsidized. There's none. And so, your so your concern is that even the people who are privately funding this project, insisting that there'll be no subsidies, you don't believe it. Well, they're not insisting there'll be no subsidy. Now they say that, but they also came in my office and said we're not going to use any government money, no government money. Right. And I said we don't believe you can fund this thing and operate it, bring your, and I asked right here in the office I'm sitting in, I said, please bring your person that knows the numbers. I don't want to talk to government relations people. You're all nice too. I don't want to talk to you about this. Bring me the guy that knows the number. Yeah. So he came down and we sat at my little state budget conference table here. And he started laying out the numbers. And all of a sudden it was like $5 billion to help build it uh, a loan from the federal government. I was called a TIFI loan, transportation infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, uh, and you, and, and, you make and, no distinction about subsidy from the federal government versus subsidy from the state government. No. Okay. Uh, because in the end, we're all going to have to pay it. And uh, even if you don't write it. But yeah. in his own admission, it, they were going to try to get $5 billion from the federal government. Otherwise, they can't get the investors. And investors aren't going to buy into something where they're going to lose money long term that never pays for itself that requires a subsidy. So, you know, they pretty much let all their people go, too. There's not many of them left out there. Uh, the, uh, the part, the problem with the rural members, and I consider myself a rural member, oh, you although are? I'm constantly You're working Jackson on. Jackson County is a rural county. Come on. You're a rural member. Which, which county? Uh, your, what, what, your county is. Um, Cherokee. Cherokee County. That's what I said. Cherokee County is a rural county. I mean, oh, you are a rural me. member, right? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. uh, proudly so. Yeah. But in the the rural members, and the, the, it doesn't go through my district, but the rural members will all stick together right. because we have to do that. Otherwise, we get run over yeah. literally by a high-speed train. So you're going to take that train, and you're going to go right through people's pastures and yards and land and stuff like that for, what, a couple hundred miles. And what benefit do they get? None. 
Yeah, that's except been the, the privilege of watching the train go by. That's been the conversation from the, yeah, from the very beginning. So you brought up the question of urbanization. That is the second thing I heard from uh, Lloyd Potter this week. Yes. Um, we're up to 87%, according to the demographer, we're up to 87% of the state's population living east of I-35. We already have five of the 13 largest counties by uh, cities, pardon me, by population in the country. No point in pretending otherwise, we're an urban state at this point. And our transportation challenges are the transportation challenges of an urban state. And as you point out, that reality is going to be more of a reality going forward because something like 90 plus percent of the projected growth in Texas between now and 2050 is expected to be in the 80 plus metropolitan counties. What does that do to your future transportation planning specifically? Uh, it's going to take pretty much everything we've got. Uh, uh, in the mode of transportation in our urban area to pe get people going uh, and get them where they need to go. Uh, and also remember, uh, there are, uh, what do you call it, uh, paradigm shifts. And the COVID was an experience that created a paradigm shift Yeah, where you don't necessarily have to go to work to work. Right, that's true. Yeah, the first two or three months of the session, I only had two or three of my staff here. They're all at home. Right. But we're talking to each other every day. We learn how to do Zoom. We get and, iPads and things by like the, that. By the way, that's not likely to change when we come back to normal. I think a lot of people are going to get used to what happened during the pandemic and say, this is how I want to do it going yeah. forward. Right. So, yes. Uh, and so that's, a, you know, two years ago, we were three, two or three years ago, we were talking about uh, the transportation network companies like the Ubers and the Lyft and stuff yeah. and how that was going to change everything. Then we... Uh, pass some bills for that recognize you can drive uh, with no driver. <laughs> you know, you're totally automated uh, vehicles, autonomous vehicles. You don't even have to have a driver. Yep. And so, you know, if you imagine a world that can just, you pick up the phone like you're going to, or iPad, your iPhone, and I, I need a ride. And if this little buggy comes over and gets you, um, intelligent transportation systems are amazing. And uh, they're not, futuristic they're here now they're here now and so and so the, the fact of those as an element of this does change your calculation and yeah if we're becoming, it changes if we're it on city, city focused it really does make a difference it makes it yeah yeah and um yeah you, know, you, you don't just see it on yeah. individual workers yeah uh you see it on, on on the roads with some of these automated and more intelligent vehicles you're going to see it in trucking uh where your your one truck is pulling two or three trailers and they're basically connected with the uh, Bluetooth. <laughs> yep. And uh, I think they're going to be much more efficient actually going down the roadways. And uh, I, I know in working with some of the different metropolitan planning organizations like the Metroplex, uh, they were wanting to build more H, what we call HOV or some people call managed lanes. Right. And give priority to these smart cars that can just kind of tie themselves together and get out of the main lanes and go. Um, so we're going to, you know, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see uh, the dynamics of what changed. Uh, I, I know when I was touring the Uber facility that's here, uh, kind of one of the regional areas uh, uh, a couple of years ago, they were showing me what they were doing with trucking. 25% uh, of all the trucks on the road are empty or 25% empty. And I, just, I was just shocked by that. They go one way hauling and they come back empty. And if Uber can uh, do ride sharing, you know, like transportation networking, they can do that in the trucking industry, true. And then you can haul a lot more stuff using that technology. 
than what we're doing. So you, in effect, can lower the number of trucks on the road and get more goods right, delivered. Right. Deal with the congestion issue. All right, so sure. we just have a couple of minutes left. I want to ask you about, finally, uh, Chairman, another kind of infrastructure, and that's broadband. Um, oh, seems like, seems like we finally have real progress on this issue in the legislature. It only took a public health emergency, right? Um, HB5 unanimously passed the House yesterday, a week after SB5 unanimously passed the Senate. Governor is going to surely sign it. It was an emergency item after all. So finally, we're going to have broadband legislation. What does this mean for your hometown of Jacksonville? What does this mean for Cherokee County? Well, we're, we're actually not through voting yet. Uh, Senate Bill 5 went over to the House. Right. House Bill 5. Uh, came over to the Senate, and we've got to get one of them back. Well, but, and so, but, you, but you know my point. I mean, you're yeah, both, it was unanimous on both sides. Unanimous both on both sides. I mean, we're not, I, I, we're not at the finish line yet, but we're at the two-yard line, right? I mean, we're there, close to it. And no one doubts that this is going to happen. So my question is, what does it mean for Jacksonville? What does it mean for Cherokee County? What does it mean for Deep East Texas? I mean, we know that three in 10 residents of rural Texas, some parts at least, don't have it, access to high-speed it, internet. It, it means a lot. Uh, yeah. And we don't really, I've been saying for a long time, you know, we don't have broadband out in the country, but it's not East, just East Texas. That's West Texas, South it's Texas. It's a panhandle, right? Yeah, all, all those all those people. It's the same problem. And we've been saying that for years. I keep telling my urban uh, members, you know, y'all just don't seem to understand. We, we broadband, we don't have high-speed broadband. We've got a lot of my districts who still doesn't have cell phone signal. And they just are shocked. I'm going, I got counties without hospitals. I got counties without doctors. I said, we really live in a country. And they're going, oh, my goodness. I'm going, we don't even have a Walmart in some of my county. And they're going, well, why do y'all live there? <laughs> I'm going, because that's what we love. We love we love the country. We like it out there. But uh, it will. it's uh, extremely important, important, not just for individuals. Uh, it showed up uh, as a highly important thing when COVID hit because of the education. Uh, the, in the urban areas, you had a lot of kids that didn't have laptops, but you get them a laptop. They still had infrastructure, but they couldn't afford, their parents couldn't afford to pay for the, the internet. In the rural areas, it was just the opposite. The infrastructure physically is not there. Yeah. We're willing to pay, it's just not there. And so uh, uh, it means that not only will people uh, be able to, have convenient flow of information, but for the first time in a long time, you'll actually be able to go out several miles outside of town and operate a business with a website right. uh, that has a high quality stuff. You can't operate a business without right. broadband. Now I'll, I'll uh, point out uh, chairman that uh, part of the president's infrastructure bill is broadband. Don't you want some of those Buddha bucks? Don't you we want, do some, want some of those? <laughs> we do want some of those. Yeah. But a lot of those you cannot draw down if you do not have a statewide plan. And we're one of six states that do right. not. So good but news. The broadband bill that passed both yeah. house chambers now uh, includes that. You've been listening to Point of Order, a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, Robert Nichols, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Texas Tech University, Toyota, Lithify Technologies, the Keep Texas Trucking Coalition, and Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 87th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.